HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and uh, we are chatting today on a kind of a monthly, almost monthly roundup with the wonderful Leah Douglas, uh, who comes to us from um, from the Food and Environment Reporting Network, among other things. You have all heard uh, Leah on this show many, many times, so I'm not going to read her lengthy and impressive bio. But Leah, I understand that you were just on CBS News. Did I see that correctly? That's right. Yeah, there was a uh, I did an interview with their radio weekend roundup podcast last week on COVID and food system workers. Fantastic. So it's not just me who's going to be competing for your time. It's other media outlets. So I'm glad I've locked you into this thing of coming <laughs> of coming on the show once a month. Or like I, I could say well, bye bye to Leah. Leave she's leaving me in the dust here. <laughs> no, but that's so great. I'm really congratulations. It's nice to see you break through to, you know, people who like don't normally listen to anything about the food system and don't really understand that there is such a thing as a food system. And I know that that's uh, something that a lot of people just really doesn't cross their radar for many reasons, including that the food system itself prefers to keep its workings and machinations opaque to uh, our us consumers, if that's, if that's not an exaggeration. I don't think it is. Um, anyway, Leah, let's start with that fantastic map that you put together way back in May, I think it was. Um, you've been mapping COVID-19 in rural and farming communities, especially where meatpacking is uh, is located, meatpacking meat facilities. But you've also overlaid that with um, 
uh, with numbers on, uh, you know, farm workers getting sick and also food processors getting sick. So take us through what's been going on uh, sort of in general in the food industry vis-a-vis COVID. So I'm entering into uh, the third month, uh, fourth month now of uh, mapping food system um, outbreaks of COVID-19. And as you said, yes, we're tracking it in the farm sector, among farm workers, food processing sector, which uh, includes everything from salad and fruit packing facilities to, uh, you know, further stage meat packing, et cetera, and uh, meat packing facilities that do animal slaughter and sort of the initial processing. And what we've seen in the last Shucks. few months... Is everything all right? Sorry, you're fine. I didn't. I forgot to turn my phone off. My apologies. <laughs> That's all right. I'll start that yeah. sentence again. Yeah. Um, what we've seen in the last few months is that cases in all three of these sectors are continuing to rise. Uh, as of today, as we're taping July 13th, uh, I've tallied over 43,000 uh, cases of COVID-19 among food system workers. Uh, about 35,000 of those are among meatpacking workers. So that's the biggest uh, chunk. And then we have about 4,000 each in food processing and among farm workers. And that's at about Uh, 550 facilities uh, across the country. And essentially every state now has seen an outbreak of COVID-19 among one of these three sectors. I think maybe three states have not, uh, but generally speaking, this has pretty much reached every state and at least 162 workers have died uh, from COVID-19. And uh, safe to say that these are all uh, underestimates of the total case numbers, uh, but this is the best estimate we have so far. Wow. That's, I mean, just the meatpacking alone is kind of breathtaking. And of course, farm workers are outside, so they're possibly less, you know, it's somewhat, somewhat less of a risk for them. Um, Food processors, I doubt, work quite in the same close quarters as people in on a, on a uh, production line, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say there's sort of different factors affecting each sector. Certainly farm workers, it's interesting, of course, you know, farm workers are outside when they're actually in the field. And what we've seen from reporting and anecdotally is that the the COVID transmission risk is more in farm worker housing facilities where workers are often housed very uh, closely together or in lunchrooms. Uh, Some farms Ah. um, have not expanded their sanitation access. So hand washing stations can be far away and, and have infrequent access. So there is more a transmission risk at those common hotspots. And food processing, you know, it really just varies. Some food processing facilities are quite small. You know, there's one that's a Harry and David facility, you know, the the high-end sort of food gift company. So, you know, and that only has a handful of workers that have been affected. And then there are also much larger facilities that might be more akin to a meatpacking plant. So uh, in those two sectors, I do think the the numbers are, um, you know, this looks a little bit different, the transmission risks than in meatpacking, where, as you said, you know, workers are pretty uniformly very close together, uh, working shoulder to shoulder on the processing line. Right. And so and so that uh, leads me to the next the next question about meatpacking, which is, do you have any insight into whether meatpacking companies have stepped up their testing? Um, Do you see any evidence that they have been providing more PPE for their workers or that they've slowed down their chain speed at all so that workers can be spaced out a little bit more? Or, uh, you know, is, is there any evidence that, uh, you know, JBS or Tyson or Cargill or any of these big companies uh, is doing more to protect their workers? Or is it just the same as it was when you started tracking this, do you think? 
I would say yes and no. So uh, good, a good example of what's shifted over the course of the pandemic is Tyson Foods has rolled out testing of its workers at about 40 of its facilities across the country. Uh, so that's uh, maybe a third of its of its, its all of its meatpacking facilities and has slowly been releasing those results to the public, uh, which has resulted in some big tallies for large numbers of workers who have contracted the virus. Uh, but Tyson has also gotten some applause for being the only meatpacker to institute any type of regular testing that's being released to the public. At the same time, that testing effort is one-time testing, uh, not overtime, and so therefore uh, the results are, are only provide sort of a snapshot into the state of that plant uh, when workers were tested. Um, as for PPE, you know, there's there's reports certainly of more widespread access to PPE now than, than at the very beginning of the pandemic uh, when, in general, PPE was in short supply. Some workers across all of these sectors still report that they uh, struggle to get adequate PPE, but I would say that I've seen reduced uh, reports of that over time. As for reducing the line speeds, that's something that has not changed significantly or at all, in my knowledge, uh, since meatpacking plants were reopened um, after brief closures in, in April in May. And, uh, you know, definitely advocates point to very quick line speeds as one of the hurdles to adequately protecting workers from COVID-19 as, you know, workers have to have to perform their jobs very quickly and in very close quarters because of yeah. how quickly the line moves along. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm still I just want to go back to, to the fact that that workers got tested one time only. So they're not testing people as they come into the into the plant on a daily or biweekly basis or or anything like that. They just like test them once and then, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, it's interesting because we actually it's don't crazy. It, it's hard to know for sure because Tyson uh, and all the meat packers have have not been very tr- forthcoming about what the right. the comprehensive whether their testing is comprehensive or not. In terms of what's being released to the public, we do know that it from Tyson is this sort of limited one time sample. Um, you know, meat packing plants have done ver- to various degrees screening workers, uh, doing temperature checks upon entering the plant. Uh, some have installed physical barriers between workers, but all of those things are far from a hundred percent universal adoption. So it's really all over the map. Right, right. And especially, I mean, as you say, 40 out of, you know, if it's one third, 40 out of 120 Tyson plants isn't a very big uh, percentage of testing for starters. Um, So, you know, clearly they're not taking this. uh, Clearly their workers are expendable. That's what I'm getting from this. And so and so that uh, goes uh, back to the problem of the bottlenecks in processing um, where, you know, they don't they've because of closures and and lack of workers, they've had to uh, slow down, um, you know, the number of animals that they can process on any given day, which has obviously had a huge impact on on the farmers and ranchers who produce these animals for slaughter. So are those getting better, do you think, because fewer workers are getting sick or is it the same? I mean, what's I don't what's the story with that? Well, the interest industry is reporting that uh, as of, you know, this week in mid-July uh, that, you know, processing capacity is nearing the normal threshold to where we would expect to be this time of year uh, absent really? COVID-19. Uh, so keeping the plants open has successfully uh, restored the processing capacity to where it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to say whether that has a direct impact or relationship to the number of workers getting sick because the data is so inconsistent that drawing those types of conclusions is very difficult, even looking at the most comprehensive numbers that we have, uh, because, you know, periodically new outbreaks will be announced or 
cases continue to rise in counties where we know that there are meatpacking plants that have had outbreaks, but the plant itself won't report how many cases there are. Uh, So there's still indications that cases are on the rise in some of these facilities where we can't even know for sure how many workers are sick. Yeah, right, of course. Um, And so just uh, to remind people, who works in these facilities? Who, who, Who is getting sick here? I mean, I know the answer, but I want you to tell people. No, it's an important question. So the best figures that I've actually seen about this uh, came out last week from the CDC in a report uh, released about the state of, uh, you know, how COVID is affecting meatpacking workers. And CDC found in surveying state health departments that uh, nearly 90% of the workers who contracted COVID-19 identified as people of color. Uh, About 56% Uh of those workers were Hispanic and about 20% were black. Uh, So that's pretty representative of, of the demographics of folks working at meatpacking packing plants. Uh, it's absolutely, uh, you know, similar to how we're seeing, um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic take a disproportionate toll on communities of color nationwide. Uh, that's absolutely the trend we're seeing in rural communities where there are these food processing and particularly meatpacking facilities. Uh, so right. that reflects uh, the demographics broadly of uh, who's working in processing facilities. And farm workers are uh, overwhelmingly Latino and Hispanic. So uh, we're seeing cases in that community uh, in well, this, the states where there are high numbers of cases among farm workers, uh, they tend to be uh, overwhelmingly Hispanic. Yeah, right. And and largely, uh, or in many cases, these people are also immigrants of a dubious status, shall we say? Um, I'd say, generally speaking, undocumented. Or or do you think many of these workers have the H one visa? Is it H one that I'm thinking of? H one visa for agricultural work? Right. So. The, in the farm work sector, uh, there are a substantial number of workers who come to the U.S. on H-2A visas, which is the agricultural visa um, provided by the U.S. government. And there are also a substantial number of workers who are undocumented. Undocumented workers uh, also work in meatpacking plants to a certain extent, although I'm less familiar with the figures there. So um, let's take a quick break right now, and uh, we'll come back with talking about uh, the next issue uh, involving these bottlenecks, which is uh, the hideously named metaphor of depopulation. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Leah Douglas. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts.
So we were talking about the bottleneck in processing and uh, what is going on in terms of meatpacking plants. But let's talk a little bit about how farmers are coping uh, with the fact that they have to uh, depopulate or, you know, basically euthanize hundreds of thousands, if not ultimately millions of animals, uh, mostly hogs and chickens. Um, what, what are they using to do this? Uh, to affect this depopulation, and how are they disposing of these carcasses? So there are a few methods that farmers have used to euthanize their animals on the farm uh, over the course of the pandemic in the case where the processing plants uh, are sort of backlogged and, and can't take the animals. Uh, for instance, one method is to use uh, a smothering foam. Uh, this has also is particularly used with hens uh, and chickens in chicken houses in a confined space. Um, and animals can be buried on the farm. Some are composted uh, and uh, some are uh, disposed of another means. Like what? Burying them? Burying them is a common method, yes. So in your recent piece about depopulation, you mentioned that uh, people had been uh, burying, you know, large hundreds or thousands of animals in unlined pits. What, you know, why is, (laughs) it doesn't sound too savory. Clearly that has implications for groundwater, Um, But I would think it would also have implications in terms of the air quality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So environmental advocates have started to sound the alarm about the environmental impacts associated with these depopulation uh, methods and particularly the disposal methods uh, that are used to dispose of the animals. And particularly, you know, you mentioned burial, and this can be a method that, uh, you know, chemicals associated with killing the animals, for instance, in the case of smothering foam, which has a um, toxic chemical in the the foam that's used, uh, there's a fear that those chemicals can leach into the groundwater. And particularly in rural communities where these farms tend to be located, uh, you know, many people in the community may rely on well water uh, for their drinking water. And so there's a concern about uh, exposing uh, the nearby communities to these chemicals. Uh, Another method that farmers might use is on-farm incineration of carcasses to dispose of them. And there's additionally a concern that, you know, that has an air pollution impact. And many communities that are living near the types of industrial facilities that would use these depopulations population methods, these euthanization methods, already are facing air pollution and water pollution from just sort of the status quo management of waste and animals on these massive uh, industrial scale farms. So there's been concern that the additional impact of these depopulation related methods uh, could just enhance that pollution. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that occurred to me, I mean, I, I thought, why don't they just shut the fans off in those big barns and those animals would die in about four minutes just from breathing in all of the, uh, you know, air contaminants like uh, hydrogen sulfide and and methane. I mean... You know, that anyway. is another method that has been used, and I think uh, there's there's a variety of methods that can be that are permitted and and to varying degrees are recommended or not recommended based on their animal welfare implications. So, uh, you know, I think the two most common uh, methods that I'm aware of are uh, incineration and burial in terms of the the disposal, and then there's a wide range of methods that farmers have used for euthanizing the animals. Unbelievable. So let me ask you this. What role does, uh, you know, the USDA and the APHIS uh, section, which is the Animal Plant Health um, 
I forget what the IS stands for, but you know. Um, what is that? What do they play? What role do they play in monitoring depopulation? Or do they, are, they, are there guidelines? Do they inspect? I mean, is USDA involved at all? So one of the USDA's agencies, the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, or APHIS, uh, has sort of put itself forward as the agency at USDA that will support farmers through the depopulation uh, process during the pandemic. And APHIS typically uh, involves itself in managing the spread of animal diseases and uh, animal welfare in general. So this, that's sort of that arm of USDA. And APHIS has had some specific recommendations, um, and it also is a little bit uh, uncharted waters, the scale of depopulation that is being managed right now. I'm not aware particularly of, of rigorous inspections that happen, though the language is very broad where APHIS has said it will support farmers. What that support entails specifically uh, is hard to say. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so given that hog and poultry operations are largely a contract business. What what is the response from say, you know, Smithfield or Tyson in terms of how they are dealing with their contract farmers? Are they are they providing any financial assistance in the depopulation and disposal of these animals? I mean, after all, uh, you know, they theoretically quote unquote own the animals, right? Um, so what is their role in uh, in contributing to, you know, fixing this? So one of the sort of infamous aspects of contract farming is that farmers themselves take on a lot of the risk associated with their operations. And one of those is managing animal carcasses from dead animals. You know, in any farming operation, especially at a large scale and even at a small scale, uh, you know, dead animals is something that happens and how to manage those animals falls on the farmer in the case of a contract. Typically, you know, that would a farmer could anticipate a certain number of animals per year that they would have to manage on the farm. This year, these numbers for some farmers have skyrocketed far above uh, what they would ever have anticipated in a typical year, the number of animals that have had to be, to be euthanized. So the contract does not require a company like Tyson um, to provide in any specific way for the farmer because it's the farmer's responsibility. The USDA has stepped in uh, to provide a certain amount of financial support for farmers and in some cases uh, around their depopulation. So there is some money moving around to support farmers that way, but it's coming from USDA. Unbelievable. So these guys that are making millions of dollars in profit a year are walking away from these farmers who who make their money for them without helping them, without any obligation to assist them in managing, uh, you know, this unprecedented event. Uh, It just makes me hate them all the much more. I do find it intensely ironic that farmers are having to depopulate because of the consolidation of the industry. I mean, isn't that what we're looking at here? Well, certainly the consolidation of the meat industry and its result on the number of meatpacking plants, which has been generally to uh, decrease the number of, of, of major meatpacking facilities in the country, has contributed to the need for depopulation. You know, the reason why we see a backlog in processing of animals where we have over the last several months is there's only so many facilities that do a large percentage of processing, especially for beef and um, hogs. And so we're seeing a situation where those, if any, if 
even one of those facilities experiences enough worker illness and worker absenteeism to dramatically slow down their capacity, then there will be a sort of ripple effect back onto the farm where animals can't be processed quickly enough. So there is a line there connecting, you know, how powerful a, sl- a small number of meatpacking companies are and how few plants, you know, really control the meatpacking processing supply chain and how many animals are having to be slaughtered on the farm. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just, it definitely, it begs to be reformed. Um, Not that I have any anticipation that that will take place anytime soon, but uh, certainly this is a a cautionary tale and and an abject lesson in, uh, you know, in the dangers of consolidation of uh, facilities like that. So let's let's move on for a second and talk a little bit because we I don't want to keep you too long, Leah. Um, Consolidation and collusion have been in the news a lot lately uh, in as much as anything can compete with the twin disasters that we're facing between the COVID-19 and the Trump presidency. Um, but can you update, uh, do you have any insight into where some of those cases stand? I know that Tyson has agreed to uh, turn evidence on uh, its colluding partners in price fixing. What kind of information, do you have any insight into what kind of information they're planning on sharing with the Department of Justice on that? It's a great question. There is this ongoing Department of Justice uh, investigation into allegations that the biggest meatpacking companies have colluded uh, to price fix, especially in the chicken sector. Uh, though there are also price investigations going on to look at the beef sector as well, uh, mm-hmm. during that, which emerged during the course of the pandemic. Uh, there have been a few indictments in the chicken investigation, uh, but we're still waiting. Uh, soon after the indictments, Tyson Foods, as you mentioned, agreed to cooperate with the Justice Department in essentially aiding in uh, you know, securing any further indictments that might come along among its competitors um, to implicate its competitors. And uh, we have yet to see any more indictments or major news of what's going on in those cases. It's all being kept uh, pretty close to the vest. Yeah, not surprising. No honor among thieves, right? That's definitely the lesson learned there. Oh, my God. They're all they're all so disgusting. It's just kind of like, I mean, what an indictment this particular chapter in the history of meatpacking, um, you know, demonstrates. It's just it's, it's it's astonishing what's going on. But I, I you know, I, I have come to think of this whole thing and I am not a believer in God or any other being. But I do find this almost biblical in scope in terms of the, you know, the national disasters that pile up one on top of the other, uh, you know, between uh, the Trump administration and and all of these uh, industries, you know, of course, the food industry is not alone in its, in its perfidy of, of consolidation and exploitation, but it, it is kind of biblical, don't you think? This It really is an unprecedented period of history that we're looking at. Um, so tell us, what can we expect from, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I'm continuing to track these cases and I'm continuing to try to find, you know, more ways to draw analysis out to be able to show trends in specific states. Um, I did an analysis a couple of months ago looking at, uh, you know, identifying rural communities where uh, there were meatpacking plants with outbreaks and how that was affecting infection rates there. And we're hoping to do uh, some more work on that. Uh, So just trying to make more analysis from this data uh, accessible to the public. So, you know, keep an eye out. And I'm sure when I'm here next month, we'll talk more about that. Oh, yeah, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) You know, another thing that I want to talk about uh, sometime soon with you is, um, you know, water quality issues, because of course, Uh, A lot of this, um, you know, what you were talking about in terms of the depopulation and just water quality issues in rural communities in general is something that I think, uh, you know, I've gone back to that subject many times over the last uh, probably five years. 
but it, it seems like something that we need to visit again, especially in light of the many rollbacks of uh, regulations that the administration has, uh, you know, taken part in just in the last year, year and a half, really. So um, anyway, that's for another show. Leah Douglas, thank you so much for joining me, people. Uh, you can read more from Leah at thefern.org. That's the F as in Frank, E-R-N as in Nancy.org. Um, she writes prolifically. Um, and I get, and follow your Twitter feed. Your Twitter feed is really excellent, Leah. What is that? It's Leah J. Douglas at that's Leah right. J. Douglas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. See, I'm your biggest fan, girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> You know my Twitter handle by heart. I appreciate it. Yeah, I do. It. <laughs> it's about the only one I do know. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks to my wonderful sponsor. I appreciate the support. And uh, see you next week, folks, with another uh, exciting broadcast. Thanks for tuning in today. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 